hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, I would encourage you to go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on what is a cloudy and crisp autumn morning here in the capital is Sue Blacker. Sue is a self-employed business support consultant and managing director of the Natural Fibre Company, a wool mill based in Launceston, Cornwall. Um, Sue, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. It's sunny here, so that's Mm. even better. Certainly seems to be getting nicer weather than we are here in uh, London, for sure. It's a um, cloudy day. The sun's starting to just peer through the uh, the clouds. But um, I think um, given that we are now in back in Greenwich Mean Time, we may not have the sun for too long. So let's just keep our fingers crossed. Um, either way, we're yeah. both inside and warm. So um, we're out of the, uh, the cold weather. Um, normally, um, at this point in the, uh, the show, Sue, we tend to dive into the topic of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering yeah. the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate that we approach the subject matter from that point of view because for me for many leaders within all walks of life it's been such a significant challenge hasn't it but for you and your business to what extent has the pandemic really affected things well in some ways a lot and in some ways quite nicely um so it, it, it is it's a very variable impact because we make started doing more crafting, our sales of hand-knitting yarns have held up really well and even grown during the the lockdown period and over the current year. However, if you lock down, you can't actually make anything. So the other end of it has been that we had to furlough everybody to start with except for some very basic maintenance levels. Uh, uh, Textile machines don't like getting cold and neglected, so it helps to run them occasionally. And um, then gradually we've brought people back and we're now back to all staff off furlough, just in time for the end of the month, in fact, of course. Um, so that's been the impact on, on the sales on the one hand of, of knitting yarns. Interestingly, on the other work that we do, which is spinning large amounts of small batches for all sorts of farmers and craft people across the country, that we had a waiting list for when we went into lockdown, and we still have a waiting list. Some people have said, no, we can't do it now. Um, we'll have to wait till next year because we haven't any money. Some people have said, I really need it because I've got more orders and I've run out of stock. Um, some people have said, I don't want to do it now because I'm just trying to work out what to do next. But generally speaking, our levels of sales are similar to last year. That's not up, but it's similar. And the reason Mm. it's similar is mainly because we've been constrained on the way in which we do production uh, in, in taking care of people in the mill. And when those people that do work in the mill have had to sort of adjust to this new way of working, how has adapting mm. to that new reality seen them cope from a mental health point of view? Because I can imagine there have been one or two anxious faces there over the last few months with everything yes. that's going on. Yes. There have indeed. I mean, it, it, it's it's been 
interestingly variable. Mental health is something that, that isn't to do with other stuff. So people who function very strongly, normally, might suddenly find that they can't cope in a stressful situation, mm. whereas other people seem to manage stress better, um, even if they aren't necessarily managing everything about their working habits altogether every day. So it, it's been variable. We've had people who've been really concerned about coming back because either they're, um, they've got young children or they've got a whole family or older people they care for and they wanted not to come back and take any risk from work to, to their homes again. We've had other people who are just really totally anxious and stressed and non-functional, but luckily that seems to have been remedied was a fairly short-term situation. And we've had other people who just carry on because, you know, you've got to carry on sort of mm. thing. Um, so it, it's been quite variable from that point of view, and individuals need individual support. In terms of the way that we can best support them, I think being up-to-date continuously, which is a nightmare in itself, but up-to-date with all the regulations and being sure that we are doing best possible work practices for hygiene, biosecurity, uh, health management, keeping in touch with people and things like that. So we have a, an online um, chat group, for instance, that people can talk with. We have regular briefings, at least monthly, sometimes more regularly. And that sort of thing, which just means that people have a way of keeping in touch when they're not at work. Mm. And then once they're at work, there are regular staff meetings anyway, suitably distanced. But, um, yeah. Yes, I think um, sometimes we can understate the importance of that human interaction, which I think we've taken for granted very much during the um, the sort of pre-pandemic uh, years um, as well, for sure. And I think you raise a very yeah. valid point as well, that sometimes it is important um, in-house just to have those sort of pragmatic individuals who come up, what may will be willing to uh, to carry on and just keep sort of sticking their um, hands in where uh, they need to. Um, as a leader, yeah. of course, um, you talked about their taking on the lead of sort of safeguarding everyone else's mental well-being and yes. making sure that you're providing yes. support where needed. I suppose when you are at the top of the business taking those steps, um, it can be quite mentally taxing yourself as well. So self-care from a leadership yeah. point of view is also incredibly important, isn't it? I agree. I mean, I have been working from home and as you explained in your introduction, I'm actually a self-employed consultant. Um, I'm technically no longer the managing director of the company because I sold it in December last year mm. to some new guys who took it on at a very opportune moment and have been, you know, using me as their support and advice, um, mainly on technical and but also on some marketing and other things. And so I've been slightly at the side, and that's also been interesting because, on the one hand, it gives you a sense of separation and, 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 and loneliness. And I think that that is a, a common feeling that leaders have anyway. Mm. They cannot become too close to everyone because it, it disables them from being leaders because they become less objective. So there's, there's that going on. And there's also the fact that you absolutely have to always be smiling, always be up, always be positive, um, even though you, know, you want to see your sister you haven't seen for two years 
and can't. So there are always those sorts of things to manage. And I find personally that the way to do it is to keep busy and also very much, and I did more of it because I could, to keep fit. Mm. Um, and I think fitness is, is an enormous um, mental support, actually. I think we're really seeing the value of that at the moment, aren't we? Um, keeping fit and keeping yourself in a good physical as well as mental uh, space because that time that yeah. people have had to self-reflect during this time, starting to work from home, starting to bring these into their daily routines, it is so, so important. And we've seen some real benefits uh, from that. So it is something that we shouldn't lose sight of, certainly going forward from here. Well, absolutely. I do think the world is changing. You know, I said earlier that, you know, the people were knitting. Um mm. People are doing more handcrafts. They have had more time. They've had time working with their kids and learning how to do school work again. Um, but they've also had time to you know, do things for themselves. And there's, there's a huge satisfaction out, that you get out of making. And so it's one of the joys of being a manufacturer, of course, is making in the large, but also making things which are raw materials for craft people is also a, a, a lovely thing to be able to do um, and, and does have potential growth because also we work with pure wool mm. and that has environmental um, benefits and you think you know, of, of the clean air that we had during lockdown when there weren't so many aircraft or cars travelling around and there are all sorts of things that are actually accelerating the changes that people have had in their attitudes but maybe not been able to deliver personally and now possibly can. So I think one of the, the things that I felt is that although it's a horrible disease and it's killing people and it's frightening people and stressing them and forcing them to work in different ways, some of those ways were going to happen anyway mm. and have probably just been accelerated. Um, and some of the benefits, like working more from home, having a better work-life balance, um, doing more creative things, making time for fitness, those are the sort of things that really do benefit people at the same time. They do, absolutely, and um, you're very and right I think as well. Cooking, cooking is, is one of the things. I've, I've been doing quite a lot of cooking. Mm. Um, communicating with one's family, if we both cook the same thing and try it out and send photographs to each other, which is it's a very personal thing, but... The interesting thing is that in, in the high street, for example, and in, say, flour mills rather than wool mills, they've had to change their packaging because they needed to sell more to people who were making bread at home rather than to bakeries. And so there are um, those sorts of things. People have been doing a lot more cooking, and cooking proper, decent, natural food, local food, mm. is often also, and we, we focus a lot on British wool and local wool as part of what we do in manufacturing, it, it's it's hugely beneficial um, to people's health. And I, I'm pleased and, you know, that we're able to be part of that as well. And um, you mentioned, of course, that uh, sustainability and environmental considerations are very much going to be at the heart of things as um, we sort of go forward and keep changing up our working practice. And indeed, so many people now are in favour of a green economic recovery. So there are positive learnings, certainly, to take from this uh, this pandemic. And sort of reflecting Mm -hmm. on your experience over the last few months, is there anything that you can really say that you've taken as a lesson from this yourself, Sue? Um, I wish we weren't using so many plastic masks 
I mean, I, I do think people um, are, are getting more towards making club ones and reusing them. I think the amount of, you know, we, we just had at the beginning of the pandemic an enormous message from all sorts of people, specifically, most importantly, probably David Attenborough, saying the sea plastic is terrible and what do the first thing we do, all our PPE, all our masks are, are plastic. And I have to say, it is it's a very effective material for that purpose. And therefore, you know, we, uh, we should be, I hope, trying to recycle plastic where possible for those uses, although it is um, chemically quite hard, I believe. Um, but we, you know, we've got a lot of plastic in the world. The main thing to do is to keep it in a circular economy so that we can reuse it rather than creating more of it. If we don't need as much car and aviation fuel, then arguably we don't need so much oil out of the ground, mm. and therefore we do have the chance of having all the uh, chemicals derived from oil being used less as well. So there, there are opportunities, I think, to to rethink uh, what one does, and you know we, we can't have non-plastic in PPE, as far as I can gather at the moment. Um, although before plastic happened, you know, Florence Nightingale didn't have plastic. Um, so even in health, it's a matter of cleanliness and changing and boiling things that seems to work, have worked then. Um, mm. Plus, of course, the great antibiotics, which have made so much difference, although you know, that's potentially a threat if we have resistance. So it all goes around and comes around, and that's what, you know, going back to why we're in wool and textile manufacturing, it's because wool is pretty recyclable many times and is eventually fully biodegradable into um, a non-poisonous um, waste. And just thinking about how we do need to, of course, change things up in future just for the benefit of uh, the environment and the planet, because it has been such a wake-up call, this pandemic. Um, We can't look too far ahead, of course, given the uncertainty of the global landscape. But if we do pretend we have a crystal ball for a moment and can look ahead in 12 months' time, um, what are the changes that you're really hoping to see over that period, Sue? And um, indeed, where would you like the Natural Fibre Company to be as a business by this time in 12 months? Well, sadly, um, I think one of the things probably is that we will not have a large number of additional staff. We should be able to have the same number of staff, but I don't see our staff growing, and that's because we're doing a great deal of work on product, product sorry, productivity and automation and becoming more efficient and uh, managing the materials, which are very variable more efficiently and effectively will therefore mean that we are doing more with less which is extremely helpful um, and it means that our staff will become more skilled and their jobs will become more secure Um, so in that sense it's good but I don't necessarily see us having a large number of, of additional staff. I would expect our sales to grow for all the reasons I've been mentioning um, I mean, there are two, three thousand farmers out there all relying on us all the time to process their wool every year. Some of them have grown quite large businesses on the back of being able to get the wool made into yarns. 
So we have a degree of security and longevity. We've been going um, 15 years in Cornwall and before that another 20 in Wales. Mm. Um, and we've pioneered a large number of things, which there are, there are other companies which are now bigger than us, more focused, but actually copied us. And it's nice that we have begun to see an industry regenerated. I am worried about relationships with Europe um, because it's interesting most small people and farmers um, differ in that farmers seem to have been um, anti-remaining with the EU despite the obvious benefits, particularly to sheep meat. But um, I think that's going to be complexity, mainly administrative, but it, it may also preclude some of our hopes for growing more sales in the rest of Europe, where we've always had a small number of customers and it was beginning to grow. Um, it has grown since Brexit decision was made, so one hopes that that will continue to be an opportunity. We'll be bulky. It doesn't terribly work to, although we have shipped more to Australia, Coles to Newcastle, but generally speaking, we um, would expect to expand our market in Europe, and that may become more difficult. It is something which we can't forget about, isn't it, Brexit? Because it was the uh, the buzzword before COVID-19 emerged at the beginning of this year. So we've gone up from essentially one long period of talking about one topical issue straight into another one. But all the while in the, in the background, the trade negotiations yeah. have been continuing with the European Union. And hopefully we will soon have some idea as to whether there will or will not be a deal in place by the end of the, uh, the year. So that's something that business will be keeping a close eye on. And given the sort of huge variable there actually um i actually think sue just as soon as we start to get a better idea over the coming months as to what shape brexit will ultimately take and the direction in which the pandemic is simultaneously going in as well it would actually be really beneficial i feel to welcome you back onto the program so that we can catch up on how things have changed and we can start to see what direction the business is going in as a result of those changes yeah that would be very welcome i think there are I mean, we think we're a great and wonderful business and we love talking about ourselves. <laughs> so, uh, so, yes, that would be fine. I mean, we think that um, the sorts of things we've done and pioneered and are trying to do on a small scale, some of them can be large. One of the key things is we are actually not, strictly speaking, a manufacturer. Yes, we make things. Yes, we use big machines. But actually, we're a service. What we do is make things for people and fulfill, we hope, sometimes their dreams, their aspirations, and their needs. And so it's about being a very dedicated and customer-related service, rather than, strictly speaking, something that turfs out millions of metres of yarns. You're exactly right. It is so much more than just a business. It is a service. It does rely, of course, on people and relationships. And it's going to be so, so important over the uh, the next few months that we do make the most of those. Um, it's such a shame yeah. that we don't have more time on the programme this morning, Sue, because I'm sure we could discuss these issues long into the afternoon. But I have to say, yeah. I've really enjoyed well, your company you. on the programme. I really, really have. It's been such, um, of course, an enlightening experience for me and the listeners. And um, until we do hopefully get an opportunity to catch up and speak again, Game. please do take care and stay safe with all that is still well, going on in the world too and thank you for asking the right questions and good luck 
for you as well. It's certainly what we're all about, getting the authentic voices of British industry out there into the uh, the national sphere here at the Leaders' Council so that we can all look to learn from each other. I would also like to extend that well wish to all of the listeners that are tuning into today's podcast. Please do continue to look after yourselves and do be considerate of others because it does make such a difference in keeping people safe during this time. Um, it was a pleasure for me to welcome Sue Blacker of the Natural Fibre Company in Cornwall onto today's programme. Next up on the show today, we'll be joined by Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Now, during his playing days, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes, both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. Since retiring from playing, Sir Andrew spent a period of time as director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board, as well as becoming a champion for both charitable and mental health concerns. And I do hope that you all enjoyed the interview just as much as Jonathan was looking forward to conversing with him. That is of course coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people, it was the senior England teams at, the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international cricket or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. Match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, And then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on. Not, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, 
that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of, because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any, uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the ashes was mm. back then you know we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible australian teams year after year so you know the, the closer we got to it the harder it became um i remember ashley giles walking into the dressing room for the f i think it was in the final day of the series and i looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years i went god charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising i haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and i went well join the club you Quite. know and i think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for Absolutely. Uh, 
everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well in a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but 
what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was... We had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, what we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so... You know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what did the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, 
especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become. An inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers Um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top ten cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare; it's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help. Uh, Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health. 
and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's a, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re uh, wearing red. So it w w what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i, I just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own 
version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's going to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.